Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of 1 John, chapter 3. 1 John, chapter 3. I want to invite you to turn there with me. You can see it on the screen here. And would you please stand with me at the reading of God's word? 1 John, chapter 3. I'm going to begin with verse 1 and read through verse 3. This is God's word. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is the word of the Lord. Please lift your hands with me as we come to God in prayer. Lord, we pray that you would open our ears right now. And that you would help us to hear truly your word this morning. And we pray that as we hear, Lord, you would add the grace to obey and follow, and to our obedience, to our following, we pray that you would add love, that obedience would spring up from a heart of love, from knowing how deeply we have been loved by you in the gospel. May our lives be deeply shaped by that good news. So Lord, bless these your people and be the true preacher in here this morning that's able to get through where mere human gifts cannot. We ask for your blessing on our time. In Jesus' name, in all God's people said amen. You may be seated. My first trip outside of the United States was to an orphanage in Honduras. Now, Vanessa, who was my girlfriend at the time, uh, who is now my wife, for those of you who don't know her, hey. Um, <laughs> She had been on this trip many times. She had spent a lot of time in Honduras there at this orphanage, and she told me I needed to come. And so I just, I just thought I was new in my faith, and I was like, okay, let's do it. First time out of the country, mind blown. And we got to this orphanage, and this orphanage was run by a man named Don Roberto. Now, uh, for the rest of our time, I'm going to call him Don Roberto lest I get tongue-tied, all right? Don Roberto was the sweetest, most steady, and most gentle man. And he would go out and find children in the most unimaginable situations, in absolute squalor and poverty, with no one caring for them, left for dead. And he would bring these children in to the orphanage, and he would care for them. He would give them education. He would give them food and clothing. He would give them meaningful work to do around the orphanage. And in the evenings, Vanessa and I would sit down with Don Roberto, and he would begin to tell us stories about these boys. And oftentimes, he would remark on the different stages of growth that different boys were experiencing. And he would say something like, you see that boy? He's a new boy. And I didn't know what he meant at first, so I kept my eye on 
a new boy that he pointed out. And what I began to see was that the new boys behaved very differently. The new boys, when they were brought in, they still were steeped in fear and this instinct that their survival hung completely on them. I would observe certain behaviors, like when their food was brought, that the, the food would barely have time to hit the plate before they would devour it because they weren't sure if someone was going to take it away. They would, they would stuff themselves. They would gorge themselves because they weren't sure if another meal was coming. They would take their, their personal possessions and they would hide them because they were afraid someone was going to take them away. Their lives were gripped by fear and insecurity because they had not yet adjusted to Don Roberto's fatherly care. They responded to Don Roberto like he was just a manager of the orphanage, just a boss of the orphanage. But then there were other conversations we would have in the evenings, and Don Roberto would remark upon other boys who had been with him for a while. And with a great sense of satisfaction and delight, he would dote on them. And I would look at those boys who had been with Don Roberto for a while. Those boys, those boys were, were free. They were generous. They, they were slower in eating their food than the other boys. They shared with the newer boys in the orphanage the things that they had. They contributed meaningfully to the work of the orphanage. They gave themselves to it. And they had a certain security about them, all because they had adjusted to Don Roberto's fatherly care. Now, for many people in our neighborhood, what they have heard about God, what they have learned to believe about God, is the narrative that God is the boss. That God is the boss. He's, he's out to get bad people who aren't doing their work, and he rewards good people for the good things that they do. They think of God as management. They think of God as, as oversight that rides your back to get you to do what you're supposed to be doing and just waiting for you to mess up so he can bring the hammer down. But what's even worse is that these neighbors, these friends in the neighborhood, have actually learned this way of relating to God from Christians. Let that settle in. They have learned this version of God through their observation of Christians. Because how we deal with others is the surest indicator of how we think God has dealt with us. If you're impatient with people, you know what's behind that? You really think God is impatient with you. If you're mean to other people and you enjoy lighting them up when they drop the ball, you know what you think really behind it all? That that's the way God is toward you. That he lights you up, that he resents you for your failures. That he's just plain disappointed with you and wish you would get your act together so he could go on about his merry way. The way you deal with others is the surest indicator of the way you think God has dealt with you. But one of the most stunning and beautiful truths of Scripture, one of the most beautiful facets of the doctrine of salvation is this. When you are united to Christ by faith, 
You don't relate to God as a boss. You relate to him as a father. And fathers have authority. But you no longer relate to God as a boss who can extract the behavior from you that he wants without caring for you. Who can exact upon you the conformity that he wants from you without actually caring about you. That's what a boss can do. A manager can get your behavior to change all the while not caring about you. Not being invested in you. Not giving a, a, a care for you. But not a father. A father can't do that. No father can do that. The biblical picture of salvation is that God isn't out to boss you or manage you. He's out to adopt you and father you. It's a very different way of seeing God. And it's a very different way of seeing yourself. How do you view yourself? How do you view God? Is he your father and are you his child? Has your view of God been even corrupted by bad experiences of a father or an absent father? Chances are in this room this morning, yes, that is the case. But the doctrine of adoption, I want, I want that to recover your view of what it means to be a child and to have a father. This is the series of questions I want you to work through this morning. Do you think of your relationship to God as employee, employer, or as father, child? Do you think of yourself as an employee of a divine employer, or do you think of yourself as a child of a divine father? Does your behavior say that you are adjusting to life under the Father's care? Today, we continue through our series on the doctrine of salvation. We've called it Saved. And we opened up with an, an initial illustration uh, of a mountain range. A mountain range with various peaks. And we said that the mountain range is union with Christ. That is what salvation is. Salvation is union with Christ. But as you ascend the mountain range that is union with Christ, there are various peaks in that mountain range that we can explore for their beauty and their power and their majesty and for their life-changing impact. We've looked at calling. We've looked at regeneration. We've looked at faith, repentance. Last week, we looked at justification. And this week, we come to the glorious doctrine of adoption. And so I want to approach our text through two points this morning. We're going to see the truth of adoption and the trajectory of adoption. We're going to see the truth of adoption. What is it? How does it work? And then we're going to see where this doctrine takes us. Because remember, doctrine is given to us through the scriptures, not just to make us smarter sinners. It's not given to us as a way of, of establishing ourselves as better than other people because we have greater command of theology. That's not why doctrine was given to us. Doctrine was given to us to change us. It's given to us to unite us. It's given to us to light us on fire, doxologically speaking. It's meant to turn us into a, a richer community of worshipers. 
That's the point of doctrine. Okay? So we're going to get into this one this morning, adoption, and it is beautiful and it's powerful. And I want this to stick for you. I want this to come upon you no matter how you feel today. No matter how people have made you feel. No matter if people have made you feel small and less significant because of your how much money you have or how smart you are or how credentialed you are. The doctrine of adoption comes in and sweeps through all of that and says none of this is sufficient for a stable identity. Come, come, child. Come and know your identity and belonging to a father. So let's start with the truth of adoption. 1 John 3. The context of this, this passage comes to us in a way that's, that's very helpful for us. Because the folks that John is writing to are going through a challenging time. And you notice, oftentimes when I frame up context of biblical books, it's usually the fact that the people of God are going through a hard time. And the nature of those difficulties just take a different shape at different times. But John's writing to a community that is, that is opposed by the culture. The culture is known for persecuting them. But what's more specific about the challenges that this community is facing is that there are internal struggles of a very specific sort. And those in, internal struggles consist of two primary things. One, people are leaving their community. Their, their community is sort of draining out because people are moving away. They're abandoning their faith. And it's causing them anxiety and turmoil and fear. And not only are people leaving their community and abandoning the faith, but they have false teachers coming in that are trying to overturn their understanding of the Christian faith. These teachers are coming in and they're saying that Jesus is not the Christ. Whatever they're saying about him, whether he's, he was just a good teacher or he was a good moral leader, he was a good example, they come shy of affirming that Jesus is the Christ. Does that sound familiar? But I like the words of one theologian in reference to Jesus Christ. He said... The next thing less than infinite is infinitely less. The next thing less than infinite is infinitely less. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior. As we just confessed in the Nicene Creed, God of God, light of light, begotten of the Father, begotten not made. Now, what John is writing to is a community struggling with these things. You know what it feels like when people leave, right? You begin to wonder. Now, it's one thing when people leave because they're moving away or the Lord calls them away. But imagine this community draining because people are abandoning the faith. Imagine the felt loss, the, the fearfulness. Am I wrong in my belief in Jesus? And then you have teachers coming in and saying, yes, you are wrong. Okay, now check it out. I want you to look and see what John gives to this community. John does not give to this community battle tactics for winning a culture war. He doesn't give them battle tactics for winning a culture war. It's not what we get. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't give them uh, 
He doesn't give them these battle tactics. He, he doesn't give them a marketing plan about how to trim some of the rough edges off of their faith so it could be more palatable to the culture. You know, the culture doesn't like this about our faith. Maybe we should adjust it under the auspices of reaching the culture. But you have, you have watered down the Kool-Aid and all you got is some red water. I want, I want grape drink. I want concentrate. You know what I'm saying? Don't water it down. He doesn't give them a marketing strategy. He doesn't give them battle tactics. What John gives them is a most glorious and beautiful statement of their adoption. That's what he gives them to weather this difficult period. This is what he gives them in order to persevere. In the midst of the conflict is a statement of adoption. Don't ever tell me that doctrine is not practical. Because everything in the scripture says otherwise. John gives them adoption. Listen to the text again. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called children of God? And so we are. It opens with an imperative. Look, behold, wonder, gasp at it. It's breathtaking. This is what the initial imperative, look, this is what it's doing. This is the force of it. Look at what kind of love the Father has given to us. Now, you got to understand what's happening here. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's beautiful. There is a Greek word that John uses here, patapain, that is translated what kind, okay? Now, what this word originally meant was of what country? And it was used with reference to something that was foreign, that was alien, that was heretofore unknown. He's saying, look at this utterly foreign, unknown love of God. It's the same word that's used of the disciples when they're on the boat with Jesus, the Sea of Galilee, and the storm is raging and it's rocking, and Jesus says, peace, be still. He quiets the storm, and they say, what kind of man is this that even the waves and the sea obey him? Patapain. They're acknowledging that he is in a category all by himself. And John is saying, and so is the love of God. In a class all by itself, there is no love like this love. Look at this utterly foreign, otherworldly love that God the Father has. Then look at how he qualifies this. Why are they to behold it? Why are they to marvel at it? Why are they to fix their gaze on it? He qualifies what this love is. This is why they should look and wonder at this otherworldly love. What is the nature of it? That we should be called children of God. This is what God's love is like. That we should be called children. Because we know that everything in us says that we should be called something else. We should be called enemy. We should be called 
foreigner and stranger, outcast, wretch, but we're called children. Look at this love. What is otherworldly about the father's love? That he doesn't hire employees, he adopts children. That the father isn't building a company, he's building a family. With the manager, you have a relationship built on production. With the father, you have a relationship built on affection. A boss can let you go when you let him down, but a father never can. The Apostle John knows that this is a hard thing for us to believe. And so he punctuates it with an emphatic note. And so we are. And so we are. It's hard to believe. I know it's hard to believe that this is the way that God relates to us. But you can hear the hint of it in John's voice when he says that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Don't you forget it. Don't you forget who you are. Don't you lose your grip on this precious truth that you are a child. When you are united to Christ by faith, you become a child and you remain a child forever. You're a child when you fail. You're a child when you suffer. You're a child when you struggle. Even as a spiritual infant, you're a child. Even as a spiritual toddler and an awkward teenager, you're a child. You're a child as you pass through midlife crisis and your body breaks down and you fight off the fears of death. Listen to how Isaiah says it. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, whom I have born, who have been born by me before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age. I am he, and to your gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear. I will carry, and I will save. This is what it means to be saved. It's not getting your ticket punched. It's not a pass that's like fire insurance, it is adoption. It's becoming a child and living up into the privileges of your adoption. Just like justification, adoption is a legal status. Remember we said that justification is not the work of a surgeon in your body. It's the declaration of a judge over your life. Sanctification is where God gets to work in your body, in your, in your physicality. But not justification. Justification does not hinge upon how you're doing today. You are declared righteous through your union with Christ. And adoption is like justification. It is a legal status. It is a new identity conferred. It's forensic. It's legal. I like how theologian J.I. Packer gets after adoption. Listen to this. If you've never read the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer, I highly recommend it. It's a wonderful book, and it's a classic. Packer says this. He says, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. 
Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. And he continues, he says, in adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. Now listen to this. This is money. To be right with God, the judge, in justification, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God, the Father, in adoption, is greater. It's greater. It's greater. Adoption is the crown jewel of our union with Christ. You are united to the Son in order to become children. That's the great privilege. God does not tolerate you. He adores you. He loves you. He delights in you. And he always has from eternity past. And the surest sign that God will never stop loving you is that he never began. That went like this. I'm going to say that again. <laughs> the surest sign that God will never stop loving you is that God never began loving you because his love for you is eternal. It is from eternity through eternity. If that doesn't bring you to life, nothing will. If that does not rebuke your selfishness, nothing will. If that does not change your life, and get into your pocketbook, and get into your relationships, and get into your parenting, and your marriage, nothing else will do the trick. Adoption can do what a thousand self-improvement rules could never do. In adoption, we get a new identity and security. In adoption, we get an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. In adoption, we get a family and belonging. But most of all, in adoption, we get the Father himself, utterly committed to us, overwhelmingly tender toward us, absolutely invested in us. Puritan John Owen said this. He said, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him is not to believe that he loves you. The greatest injustice you can do to God is not, is not to go out and commit acts of lust the, the, those acts of lust stem from the deeper, deeper crime against God that you don't believe in his love for you in the gospel. That's where all the other sins stem from. And it's the greatest injustice you could do to the father as his children is to act in a way that says you don't believe that he loves you. Now listen. I want to ask you a question. We got a lot of parents in here. And those of you who are single, I have not forgotten you. I love you dearly. I mean, you are parents in this community, okay? Presbyterian grandparents, all right? Godparents. I want to ask you a question. This is not leave you singles out. This is every bit as connected to you as well. What would you do for your children that the father would not do for his What would you do for your children that the father would not do for his? 
Would you make sacrifices for them? The Father has sacrificed more. Would you guard and protect them with every fiber of your being? The Father has even more. Would you help them and hear them and guide them and provide for them? The Father has even more. Could you give up on them? Hosea says, the Father can't. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Could you forget your children? Maybe. But Isaiah 49 says the father can't. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget as small a chance as that feels like it could be. Yet I will not forget you. You see the comparison? But the question is this, how do we know? How can you know that? How can you know these things? You can know them in the gospel. There could be no greater expression of the Lord's value for his children than the giving of his son. There's no greater statement of the value that the father has for his children than the giving of his son. In the gospel, the father gives his blessed son to claim his cursed children. He gives his sinless son to claim his sinful sons and daughters. He gives his son infinite wrath to give his children infinite joy. He breaks his beloved son in order to heal his broken children. The son of God is sent to the far off country so that the children could come back home. The royal son is humiliated in order to raise all God's children up to royal dignity. The father gave his son the judgment that didn't belong to him so that he could give you the title that didn't belong to you. Child, heir, beloved. That's good news. That's good news. See what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. But belonging to God, being his children, has a trajectory. And that brings us to our, our final point, a quick word on the trajectory of adoption. You are made a child, and where does that lead you? You can look to the social sciences and see the disparity between children who are cared for well and children who are not. It's very clear. Therapists will tell you family origins matter. But what does it mean to have your origins with this father? To be born again, not of perishable things, but of imperishable. To be born again by the word of God, to call him your father. There's a trajectory in the life of children, legitimate children. Verses two through three, listen, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Do you see the doctrine of adoption? Knowing you're a child takes you on a trajectory of holiness, of purity, of change, of transformation. 
That's the journey. And that takes place as it relates to your anxieties. You no longer have to fret and be anxious. Consider the birds, the lilies of the field. God cares for them. And how much more valuable are you? How much more valuable are you to the Father? It meets you in your anxieties and fears. The doctrine of adoption meets you in your relationships. Now, I want, I, want you, I want you to hear something important here. We tend to think of the doctrine of adoption for ourselves. But I want you to think of the doctrine of adoption for your brothers and sisters in Christ. How would you treat them if you were going to treat them as God's children? Now, we just did a seminar on child abuse and preventing it in this local community because we care about that. We want to protect God's little lambs. And we, we listened a lot to the way in which we should deal with our children and other people's children. Now, let me ask you a question. Could, could, could it even enter into your conscience to not treat someone else's children right? You, we tend to have the, the, the effect that we go over and above in order to treat other children better than we treat our own children sometimes. We're more gracious and patient. Oh, hey, hey, Johnny, like, get your children. You know, you, that's what you do with your kids, but you want to be extra with other people's kids. When you're dealing with people in this community, you're dealing with the father's kids. Treat them like their children of the heavenly father. That is required in cross-cultural community. We must always treat one another as adopted children, and that makes us brothers and sisters in the faith. And when we disagree, which we must disagree, if we're living in a real cross-cultural community, we're going to butt heads. We're going to disagree. But what must always be clear in the disagreement is that there is a core of love that is attaching us to one another, even as there's conflict. But this is a practical application of adoption. Are you treating the people around you as if they are God's beloved adopted children? And if you were to envision it for a moment, what would God say to you about the way you're treating his kids? It's, it's a worthwhile question to ask. It should change the way we relate to one another. We shouldn't think of the doctrine of adoption for ourselves only, but for one another. I want to bring up another, another little piece. I know that, that having children is hard. It's challenging. And we laugh about it because there are funny things to laugh about. And we commiserate together. But I want you to know that in your house are a bunch of walking little sermons, audiovisual gospel presentations. And I want you to receive that gospel as you witness the way that they go about life. Because in them you see yourself. And I want you to think about your words toward them. If your father spoke to you the way that you speak to your children, where would that leave you? If, if you know that God doesn't speak to you like you're prone to speak to your children, it should change the way you speak to your children. It should change the way you deal with your children. That doesn't mean we don't discipline. That's a, that's a mark of being a legitimate child. The scriptures say God the Father disciplines those whom he loves. And that is a sign of your legitimacy. Anyone who's not disciplined is not a legitimate child. 
It doesn't mean we don't discipline our children. But we are either advancing their understanding that God is a good father, or we are living in a way that tears down that idea in their minds. Are you leading your children to see God as a boss, a manager, or as a father? And I want you to think, every time you say something to your children that is threatening, that is shaming, that is guilt-inducing, I want you to stop, I want you to repent, and I want you to praise God that he had a better word toward you. That's life-changing truth. You knew those kids were going to be a sanctifying element in your life. You just didn't know how deeply it was going to go. I think all of us might have some uh, repenting to do when we go home today. But that's, that's a sign. And I want, you to, I want you to think about something, too. Think about the way you observe your children. How many of y'all know the clingy stage for kids? How many of you have been through it? Raise it up, proud, loud and proud. Nathan's back there right now with the cling. Now I want you to think about something. When children are in that kind of stage, they don't want Barbie, they don't want He-Man, they don't want Spider-Man. Nothing else will do except mom or dad. And that is a picture for us. The life that we should live before the Father is that we're clingy. Now, we don't try to get our money and our stuff and our toys and status and job titles to give us what only a father can give us. Because we'll just sit in the middle of the floor, still crying. When a kid is going through, you can throw all the he-men you want at him. You, I'm dating myself. That's what I... I he-men. Thundercats! Ho! <laughs> you can throw Lionel... You can throw, Lionel, you can, <laughs> none of that will do. They need you. And I'm going to tell you, you need the father. That's who you need when you're struggling, when you're going through. And guess what? The one you need is the one you have. He cares for you. Leave this place under the weight of that good word that God spared no cost in making you his child. And I want you to repent of all the things in your life that, that say you don't really believe you belong to him like that. And I want you to hold out this hopeful message. I got one more thing I want to say, and I want to speak to you men. Men, you there? All right, men, I want you to rise up as men who communicate the fatherly care of God in this community and for the young people in this community who maybe didn't have the privilege of growing up with a father. I want you to raise up. I want you to reject passivity. Don't excuse laziness. Don't excuse disengagement or emotional detachment. Lean in. Lead. Bear the name of Christ with honor. Show your people what humility looks like. Show them as a faint glimmer, what the Heavenly Father looks like. When you wake up in the morning, men, it's not about that to-do list. The most important thing on your list is not to be the provider. It's to be a beautiful picture of the Heavenly Father. 
whether you have your own biological children or not. Be that kind of godly man. Raise up. Let's not leave all the work to these godly women in the church. It's an epidemic. 85% of church members are women in this country. Did you know that? We have a problem. We need to correct all the evil that has been done against women. We need to be a community that says we have none of that. And we care for the women of our community and outside of our community, and we aim to support and encourage everything about their maturity and their nurture and growing up in their faith and in their vocations. But men, grow up. Rise up. Let's do this together. If you're feeling faint, if you're feeling weak, if you're feeling like you know you've been dogging it, look to a brother and say, I need, I need to raise up and I need accountability. And you know what accountability is? Accountability is someone who's going to get in your life and, and, and stab you in the front in love. Okay? That's what accountability is. We all need that. An enemy stabs you in the back. A friend stabs you in the front. All right? The, the, the Proverbs say that the, the kisses of the enemy are bitter, but the wounds of a friend are faithful. Let your brothers wound you in all the necessary ways. Let's grow up into this together. Sisters, hold your husband accountable to this. If he's not living up into this picture, in love, call him to live as a child, as a son. Let's do this for one another. All right, husbands, I'm going to give you a little, I'm going to throw you a bone. You can invite your wives and your sisters to live as children of the living God with all of the rights and privileges. They have nothing to prove to justify themselves. They are accepted in the beloved. Let's take these things and let them work out into mission. We're being sent from this place today in the benediction as beloved children. So let's live as beloved children in the world. Amen. Let's pray. We are grateful for this otherworldly love, Father. We are grateful for your care for us, and we ask that you would help us, that you would strengthen us, that you would mature us in our spiritual identity as children. We pray, Father, that you would give us success over the evil one who would tell us something otherwise, that you don't care for us, that you would abandon us if you could that we are worthless, that we don't matter to you. But we pray that the sound of the gospel would crank loudly in our ears and that you would poke a hole in the evil one's speaker so that it cannot accuse us in any kind of meaningful and powerful way. Lord, I pray that you would help us as a community to grow up into this identity, the freedom that children have. If it was a beautiful thing to see Don Roberto Loving orphans, how much more beautiful is it to see God the Father claiming sons and daughters, children. So Lord, work this into our souls. Change our lives with this good news, this crown jewel called adoption. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.